Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 26, and we're going to learn more about the Trek Boer economy following on from last episode. As we heard then, the direction of Trekker expansion was largely a function of the nature of the terrain, along with the availability of water and the quality of pasture. What was to take place through the 18th century was a steady growth of lone farms that extended northwards along rivers and eastwards between mountain ranges, or following the coastal lowlands. The main areas settled before 1720 included the country north of the Bach River, around the Pickenbach, and to the east of the Hollands Mountains. Trek Boers arrived along the Ulufans River Valley about the same time, along with the Upper Breda River and adjacent valleys and river basins. Like the Isikosa, far to the northeast, it was the streams and rivers that determined Trek Boer's settlement. These two people were going to bump into each other shortly. The Dutch settlers pushed eastwards into the coastal areas south of the Langeberg Mountains. Then, by the 1730s, the Trek Boers were entering the Little Karoo and Swellendam, which was settled in 1745. To the north, the Dutch-speaking livestock farmers crossed the arid plain between the Cape Mountains and the Rochefeld Escarpment in 1745 and occupied the most accessible portions of the interior plateau. Then they headed mainly north or northeastly into the Huntamsbach, which was settled in the 1750s, and the Neufeld in the 1760s. By the 1760s, trekkers were spreading along the summer rainfall area, leading to farms being established in the good sites of the Kambiru, including Graf Reinet. During the 1770s, Trek Boers occupied the areas to the north and east of the Sneerbach Mountains, along the southeast of the country behind Brankies Hoogge. By the 1770s, the VOC was trying to stop colonists from expanding further east of the Khamtuas River, but Trek Boers had already taken out lone farms way beyond this dividing line. And so, the eastern expansion continued anyway, and later in that decade, settlers had occupied the Zufveld. What did this all mean? These days, people discussing this period of history spend quite a bit of energy trying to debate that the expansion was a systematic move with the connivance of company officials. The reality was the farmers moved outwards and were changing their culture as they went. By now, they were wearing the koi shoes, called feltskuns, which are distinctly South African footwear, and they did not trust the company and regarded European bureaucracy as an alien concept. Population densities in these stock farming areas were low, and it actually dropped as the koi were forced out. The terrain caused this low density with arid landscapes and mountainous regions. The system of land granting also caused the low density, with each landowner entitled to at least 2,420 hectares, or 6,000 acres. The arid and semi-arid land could not support many people or animals, and the countryside had actually been more highly populated during the time of the koi koi in the 1600s than by the late 1700s. The south coast was different. It had 142 lone farms in an area of around 11,500 square kilometers, which, if we average the number of people on each farm, meant about one settler per every 10 square kilometers or four square miles. But in the arid parts of this expanding Trek Boer economy, the density of people started at around one person per 13 square kilometers or five square miles, but often more like one person per 10 or more square miles. Why the fixation with population density? The answer is this was to have a major effect on the culture and social life of the Trek Boer. The further they travelled away from Cape Town, the more isolated they became. This was to create a kind of society that was defined by individual freedom, but also created narrow-mindedness and insulation. They also failed to integrate in any way with the other people of the felt, although, as we'll hear next episode, there was much sexual activity going on. The dispersal of settlements away from Cape Town created a serious problem for the settlers of the inland regions, and that was 
transportation. The routes that connected the frontier with the Cape Peninsula were rough tracks when they existed at all. The lack of labour and low density of people meant that there was no construction and maintenance carried out in any systematic way in these early days. So the settlers merely followed well-known tracks into the interior using guides or experienced hunters at times and local sand or koi at others. To give you some idea about how wild this territory was, by the late 1750s the only improvement for the travellers was the installation of a ferry on the Breda River near Swellendam, and even that was too small to carry heavily laden wagons, which had to be offloaded and then repacked on the other side. What developed in South Africa, as in the United States, was an entire business built around herding the cattle for hundreds of miles to the market at the Cape. This was not carried out by the trek boers themselves, the cowboys of the felt, if you like. It was in the hands of employees of the main meat contractors at the Cape who travelled around the countryside buying up the farmers' stock. By now, most inland farmers were developing an intense independence and producing butter, tallow, gum, aloe and other produce which they would also need to transport to the markets. The more remote the farm, the longer it took to transport their goods to the port at the Cape. For those in the Sneerbach Mountains, Achter Brankies Hoogte or the Zurfeld, the round trip took three months. No wonder then that visitors such as Swedish scientist Anders Sparman thought the VOC should construct a second port at Mossel Bay, but that was later in 1772. I have his travelogue, which will be used in later podcasts, and because of his eye for detail, it's packed with great stories and excellent descriptions. The journey was also extremely dangerous, not only because of possible bandits on the route. Wagons would have to be dragged up and down mountainsides with many accidents taking place as these vehicles rolled or tore down the slope, pulling the travellers along with it. Improvements began in the mountains immediately around Cape Town, but further afield it was much rougher. The high cost of transportation was passed on to the consumer, so to speak. Because the trek boers were under enormous economic pressure, they kept purchases to an absolute minimum. The essential items were guns, ammunition or gunpowder, coffee, tea, tobacco, sugar and soap. Later, the settlers began to produce their own soap, but in the early days they relied on sparse delivery of these items. If the livestock farmer was in a tight squeeze, the list would be trimmed to two items, guns and gunpowder. The trek boers substituted imported goods like ropes with local products, manufacturing their own out of hides that were worked into rimpies and thongs. Animal skins were also used to make saddle blankets, sacks and even clothes. The absence of any artisans or professionals and specialists meant the settlers forfeited many of the economic advantages of those living in the small towns and the Cape Peninsula. They did without doctors, blacksmiths, carpenters, wagon makers, masons, teachers and brewers. The early trek brewers were forced into self-reliance and their descendants would define this self-reliance using a single phrase, a boer mark a plan, a farmer makes a plan. They became jacks of all trades and only made use of artisans when they travelled to Cape Town. They depended on themselves or at times their immediate neighbours for construction and maintenance work. Wealthier frontier farmers hired ex-company teachers or poorly qualified self-taughts, while children of poor farmers grew up without any education of any sort. As the Khoikhoi society disintegrated, the trek boers would rely on them for labour on their farms. The Khoi were excellent stockmen and had the added advantage of local knowledge about the best grazing areas and the best water holes. They were paid in kind, mostly, and allowed to keep a small portion of the herd for themselves. There's also been a storyline developed over time that the Trek Boers used many slaves. They did not, 
Slaves were vastly more expensive to keep than a bartering system with individual koi, so the settlers of the frontier tended to steer clear of buying too many slaves from the ships that passed through the Cape. The koi would often work for a trek boer of only a year or two, then leave taking their cattle or sheep as payment. Later, sand women and children in particular would be used, captured in the coming clashes between settlers and the sand that were to be characterized by extreme brutality. And thus, over time, a dependency developed between these people, but there was no social gathering dependency here. The trek boers felt isolated from their origins. It was extreme isolation at times, with the farmer only seeing another Dutch speaker perhaps once every few months. Naturally, day-to-day -day life on a lone farm was monotonous and dull, particularly for the women. Men spent most of the day in the saddle supervising stock herders and checking their land, or hunting with their sons. The lack of a social life and alienation from the outside world tended to blunt the trek boers' intellectual development. At home, the koi servants did most of the work around the house, along with a handful of slaves when the rich farmer was able to afford these costs. When there were times of excitement, it was not entertainment but danger. It involved violent clashes with the sand or bushmen, mainly who had become more and more hostile towards the trek boers as their ancient hunting lands were turned into lone farms. A similar development at the same time was taking place on the American plains, where the European settlers faced indigenous plains Indians. And the outcome of these clashes would be similar, with the indigenous people being forced to flee or fight to the death at times. What also developed was the trek Boer spirit of egalitarianism and independence that impressed travelers from Europe. They were also extremely hospitable to European travelers and even Khoi at times. Trek Boer neighbors sometimes found themselves quarreling over land demarcation in particular, or the use of water. Ironically, this meant the bad feeling developed between these closest to each other with little reason to find an equitable solution, at least when they weren't at war with the Koryo San and later the Koza. The independent spirit was further fostered by an absence of non-rural people who lived in towns. Think of shopkeepers and others, for example. Because they depended on the goodwill of the entire farming community, these shopkeepers and priests would often moderate these disputes. But there were no priests to go about the farming community's diffusing confrontations. There were no discussions at the local shop in the small town, which helped moderate outcomes. Therefore, Trek Boer society lacked the cement that a community-minded non-farm rural population could have provided, and because of this, the society became more atomized. Each 6,000-acre farm or larger became a kind of small country led by the old man in charge, the king or the emperor. And yet, all were known as extremely hospitable, as I said. In a country devoid of inns or guest houses, travelers needed to stop along the road at these isolated farms. When the farmer from the interior traveled to the Cape, they would receive reciprocal help from other farmers on the way. Another reason to get along with the neighbor was when wars broke out with the sand or bushmen in particular. Their very existence on the farm depended on defeating the sand and bygones would often become bygones. Imagine how the urbane Stellenbosch farmer with his vineyards and silky clothes responded to these rough and ready frontiers men and women. The farmers ran a capital intensive operation with high input costs like labor, barrels for the wine, plows and oxen. The frontier trick bird did not need much cash to start a lone farm. The average cost of buying one of these or paying a little extra for the opstal, the improvements on the farm, was far lower than the cost of buying an arable farm around Stellenbosch or the coastal lowlands. The opstal farm cost up to 500 guilders, while the freehold farm was more like 10,000 guilders. 
To give you an idea, in modern terms, 300 guilders in the 18th century was more than a year's wages for an unskilled worker, roughly 30,000 US dollars today. So a good mixed-use farm of 10,000 guilders would cost more than 33 years of hard labor for someone paid at a rate of 300 guilders annually. Stock farmers didn't have to purchase many slaves or expensive equipment. The animals themselves were his biggest investment. As Leonard Gelker writes in The Shaping of South African Society, a start-up frontier farmer would usually begin with one horse, 20 cattle, 50 sheep, a wagon, and a few implements, along with a gun, and total capital was around 1,000 guilders. Many young men started their lives as bayvoeners or tenant farmers on the property of established settlers and would build up financial capacity before heading off to purchase their own lone farm on the frontier or beyond. What developed very rapidly at this time was a mastery and skill of survival in the tough African felt. The people of the felt, the San, the Khoi, the Trekboer, all had one thing in common. Their love and knowledge of the landscape, the animals and rhythm of life, far from the influence of townsfolk. They also mastered the various skills required to survive alone on the felt, what to eat and when, what plant was useful, what animal could be found at certain times of the year in different environments, and the development of an intensely proud nature. Self-reliance builds confidence and certainty. This would be a double-edged sword later and would turn into arrogance and an isolationist policy for South Africa generally. Everything is connected, as we know. The name Boer, therefore, came into being around this time, reflecting a new African people, although they were pale of skin. At the same time, as with other European-based expansionist nations, such as America or Australia, a real disdain grew for hard labor. Farmers preferred the koi to dig a small field, should it be required. They regarded labor as something carried out by the koi, the sand, or the slave. Manual work was below the dignity of a freeburger. Their social attitudes towards manual labor, particularly by the Cape farmers, came from one major reality. There was no money to be made by being a manual laborer because it was the job of the koi, san or the slave. Up to now, freeburgers of low education could always sign up as soldiers or sailors and work for the VOC. Trading activities, though, were sewn up. They were dominated by a small entrenched merchant class in Cape Town, while other less glamorous occupations, such as fishing, was to be dominated by free blacks living on the peninsula. There was another reason to avoid these professions, and it was a tax. Poor young bayvooners thinking about starting a business as a merchant inside the Cape itself would be hit with a tax of 72 guilders should they move from one district to another. The other pastime that youngsters indulged in to build the capital was ivory and skin hunting. It was also one of the reasons why the quacha and the elephant disappeared swiftly from these regions inhabited by the new frontiers man and his family and his firearms. Thus we end episode 26. Next, we'll hear more about the slaughtering business in Little Namakwaland, and I'm not talking about beef. It was summed up by the minister of the Church of Drakenstein, who wrote an extraordinary letter to Governor de Chavonet in February 1723. He started the letter quoting the Old Testament, that we should not be like dumb dogs that cannot bark, we dutifully inform you how we have heard from trustworthy and honest persons sighing under the atrocious sins of the land. The sins of the land had been carried out by a party of young freeburgers, which the minister called murderers and robbers. Word of what these men did would spread far and wide and would not be good news for the frontier farms. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. You could also contact me directly on Twitter 
at Des Latham or send me an email through desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. Until next, be safe and well. Goodbye. Thank you.